Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, you probably have heard Mike Drews and I mention regulatory strategy a time or two on previous episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast. And we thought it might be helpful if we went into a little bit more depth and detail about what is a regulatory strategy and give you some tips and pointers on how to construct one. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I thought we would take, I guess, a little bit deeper dive into a topic that it's been something we've discussed, at least superficially, in previous episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast. And that topic is regulatory strategy. And what I hope today is that we peel back some of the layers and give you a little bit more practical, pragmatic tips and pointers on what it is and and maybe the components that make up a regulatory strategy. And of course, who better than to dive into topics regulatory related in med device other than Mike Drews with vascular sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. You and I, like I said, we've talked both on the Global Medical Device Podcast and during our own conversations about regulatory strategy. And, you know, as we you and I typically do on these things. It might that might be a kind of a good framework to start. You know, just what is a regulatory strategy? You know, from a thirty thousand foot view, and then through the course of the next few minutes or so that you and I are chatting, we can start to dive a little bit deeper. So maybe a minute or so, give people an overview or, or kind of a big picture idea of of a regulatory strategy. Well, I think that's a great place to start, John. And as always, I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about this very important topic with with you today. Let me turn the tables around just a little bit. I don't know about in your experience, John, but in my world, a lot of people will equate regulatory strategy with pathway to market. In other words, many times I'll ask somebody when I come, you know, talk to to a new company for the first time, I'll ask them what is their regulatory strategy, and they will respond by saying. 510K or de novo or something (laughs) like that. Do you think that kind of a response is a regulatory strategy? In other words, do you think that regulatory strategy is synonymous with pathway to market? I think pathway to market is an element, but, you know, as far as 510K de novo, that's a tactic, you know, and and this topic of strategy I've found over my career is, is often a word that's misunderstood and maybe misapplied or misused in some cases. And I actually... I did a lot of studying on my own to try to better understand strategy a few years ago. And I came across this definition for strategy, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. The author, I'll give her credit. Her name's Erica Anderson. Uh, She has quite a few books, by the way. But she had this definition that I really liked. And strategy is a hope for future. To me, that's simplified strategy. But I I think something like a 510K or de novo is more of a, a tactical execution of a strategy, not the strategy. Well, I would agree with you, John, and I kind of uh, I find that interesting definition of strategy, a hope for a future, kind of an interesting definition. But I agree with you that regulatory strategy is not synonymous with pathway to market. Pathway to market, whether it's 510K or PMA or whatever, is, is the end game, is where you want to end up as a result of your regulatory strategy. Your regulatory strategy is the consideration of all of the different options and the pathway to get there. 
So to use a metaphor that I've used many times in the past, John, this is a, a poker game. And just like in poker, strategy is key. So your strategy is not necessarily to win the game. That's the outcome. But the strategy is how you get there, considering all of your different options, which card do you play and when and so on and so on. That is, to me, what strategy is all about. And it sounds like uh, from what you just said, John, that's what it is to you as well. But regrettably, it doesn't seem that to be that way for everybody that we talk to. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a good place to start because, uh, and I appreciate the example because I, I do think a lot of people think, oh, my regulatory strategy is a 510K. It's like, well, wait a minute. And, you know, you and I have chatted about this and exchanged some notes on this. I think it's for a strategy to be meaningful. I mean, you have to consider all the different options, the pros, the cons, the good, the bad, the ugly, and that sort of thing. Thoughts about that? Yeah, again, John, you and I are are singing exactly the same song here. You do have to consider all of the different options and the advantages and disadvantages. And one of the many things that I've learned in my almost 30 years of playing this game is that unlike what some people might think, there's nothing in the world, the regulatory world anyway, that's black and white true or false, right or wrong. There's an infinite number of shades of gray. So, for example, one of the things that differentiates my approach to regulatory and quality as well, for that matter, compared to so many others, is that I will never tell a company what not to do. In other words, I refuse to play the regulatory police, as as is um, the case in many different organizations. Instead, on the contrary, I pride myself on giving the company all of their different options and the advantages and disadvantages of each. And then together, we have a discussion of what option is best for that particular company, given their business goals, given their resources, given their risk tolerance, and so on and so on. And I guarantee, John, I just said this to one of my new customers yesterday, that one company in a certain set of circumstances might decide to to go down one particular pathway, whereas another company, given exactly the same circumstances, might decide to go down a completely different pathway. So this is all what goes into the to the strategy, at least the way I think of it in that sense of the word. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess I'll highlight or reemphasize a pro tip. Uh, the first pro tip that we've talked about so far today is Folks, if your regulatory quote strategy says 510K or de novo or class one exempt, that is not a strategy. Uh, That is not a strategy. (laughs) So, all right. So let's sort of dive into sort of the, I guess, the makeup or the construct of what goes into a regulatory strategy and and maybe a good thing or a good place to start with this. Because I envision this is a, a living artifact in some way, shape or form, you know, call it a document or record or what have you. But but I think um, the, the key thing about this artifact is it's a communication tool within, certainly within my company, within the stakeholders. It articulates and expands upon the pros, the cons, the options, the, the business risk, and, and those sorts of things. But with every good artifact, there's usually a, a nice summary section. And what would you put into or what is a regulatory strategy executive summary? What would be contained within that? So great question, John. So one of the first things that I often do in many of my projects when a company asks me to come in and help them is we will put together what I call a regulatory strategy executive summary. It's not a full-blown regulatory strategy. It's just a summary of our 
different options or different, for example, pathways to market. You might you mentioned a few, class one exempt, 510K, de novo, maybe wellness exemption, maybe PMA, maybe HDE. Obviously, it's going to be a contingent on the labeling and the technology, but we will put together a list of all of the different options and the advantages and disadvantages of each. And to the extent that I can, I can also provide a regulatory burden assessment and a regulatory risk assessment of each of those options. So, for example, if the company decides to go option one, here's the kind of testing that you would need. Here's the kind of data that you would need. Here's the relative probability of successfully getting it through the FDA or not. On the other hand, if you go to uh, option number two, this is the kind of testing, this is the kind of data that we would need, and this would be the the, the um, regulatory risk or the probability of successfully taking it through the FDA or not. So again, it's a summary of all of our different options, and then we can add more and more components on top of that. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, it totally does. You know, and I have a picture in my mind of some of the use cases uh, where this executive summary would be uh, helpful. But what are some of the areas where a regulatory strategy executive summary can be used? So it can be used in many different ways. For example, it can be used in a variety of business planning purposes when the company is trying to get an estimate of time and money to get a particular device onto the market. But to be honest with you, John, my favorite way to use the regulatory strategy executive summary is with small companies and startups who are in the process of raising money or with medium or large size companies where somebody needs to get the buy-in of the senior management team in order to in, in order to you know approve the or green light the, the progression of that project. So what a lot of companies do, for example, let's take the, the small and the startups as an example. They'll take this regulatory strategy executive summary and they'll boil it down to two or three PowerPoint slides that then they put into their investor pitch deck. And as some in your audience may know, John, I also consult for a, a variety of uh, angel and VC groups. So I see you know, the investment piece from both sides. When it comes to pitching your idea for a medical device to a potential investor or to a potential uh, to senior management of your existing company. There's really two things that you and your team need to demonstrate. First is that you and your team know all of your different options, 510K, de novo, yada, yada, yada. To be honest with you, John, that's the easy part. The much harder part to demonstrate to the potential investor or to your senior management is that you and your team have the knowledge and experience to roll with the punches. In other words, as you and I have talked about many times over the, the months and years, John, regulatory is a very fluid, very dynamic kind of environment. Things are, are changing. And I'll give you a quick example. There are many devices that are on the market here in the United States that have come onto the market in the past under the 510K, say 10 years ago or even five years ago. But if that same device came to the FDA today with exactly the same submission, it might not get through. The question is why? What has changed? Has the regulation for the 510K changed? Absolutely not. The regulation has not changed, in fact, at all since the 510K was created in 1976. Yes, there's been guidance that have come out and so on, but not the regulation itself. But what has changed is the level of 
mm, let's call it scrutiny, if you will, that FDA is applying to certain parts of those 510K submissions. I think it's a little beyond the scope of this particular discussion, John, to, to get into those details. But bottom line, we have to demonstrate to our potential investors or to our, our uh, senior management that we know what our options are and that we can roll with the punches as things change. What would you add to that, John? Well, I would add a couple of things. I think, especially for the the small slash startup entity, I think it's conventional wisdom is figure out the fastest path to market. I think that, you know, sometimes speed or, you know, uh, crystal clarity, if you will, from a regulatory standpoint is um, viewed as a an asset, you know, so to speak. And I think a lot of times that the... Uh, objective that a startup you know it takes on or, or or proposes to tackle from a regulatory pathway standpoint is find the the path of least resistance and the the quickest path to get through those regulatory challenges and i think that's um i mean i know you and i've talked a lot about this that's not always going going to be the case i mean just because oh 510k is the most common pathway for med device in U.S. doesn't necessarily mean that's the best option. So I, I think um, I, I like this this angle because it, it gives it gives the company more, puts them in a more strategic position to figure out what makes sense for their product and their technology. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more, John, and I would take it one step further. Perhaps I shouldn't say this in a, you know, in a podcast that's being recorded and is going to be listened to uh, an awful lot of people. I don't know about you. I'm getting sick and tired of people when they talk to me, especially for the first time. They say they want the quickest, easiest, cheapest way to get their device onto the market. I mean, have you ever heard anybody come to you and say, <laughs> I want to find the longest, most expensive way? <laughs> you know, it's so, so many times I, 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 people, I see people being penny wise and pound foolish. You know, they, in their, in their haste to do things quickly, they take shortcuts. In some cases, they don't necessarily do things right, or they don't do things that they really should. And they end up costing, you know, themselves a lot of problems later on. So believe me, I understand, you know, the importance uh, in any company, including a startup, but in large companies as well, the importance of getting a product onto the market quickly. But on the other hand, you know, we do, I think, have to call, uh, take, uh, sorry, we do have to consider all of our options. And yeah. sometimes, you know, the quickest pathway to market is not always the best. Yeah, I'm. I'm reminded. I think there's some sort of old adage out there that what's good for the short term may not be good for the long term, and vice versa. I suppose. So I think you have to take more of a holistic approach. I'm just going to add when it comes to strategy. I think it's good to have both a, a long, a short term as well as a long term strategy. And as long as you understand the big picture, I have no problem with companies taking certain mm, shortcuts, if you will, in the short term, as long as they have a long term game plan. In other words, I'll give you a, a quick example. Another thing that differentiates my approach to this game is oftentimes when I start working with a company, they'll tell me uh, what they want to put in terms of bells and whistles and features in their current generation and their first generation of the device. And one of the things I usually ask for very early in the game is what I call a future features list. 
In other words, tell me about all the bells and whistles that you would like to add to your particular device in the future. And the reason why I like to have that from the, the beginning or as close to the beginning of this process as possible, John, is because then I can, with the company, go down that future 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 feature list. And I can say, you know what, this particular feature, this is going to be a pretty heavy lift. It's going to require more testing and so on. So it makes sense to, you know, put that in Gen 2 or Gen 3 of the device. On the other hand, this other feature is a pretty easy thing to incorporate. So why don't we roll that into, you know, our Gen 1 device right now? Bottom line, John, as I tell all my, my customers, the better I can understand their goals, not just in the short term, but in the longer term as well, the better I can help craft the appropriate strategy, both long-term as well as short-term strategy, and make sure that uh, that we ultimately get the ball over the goal line. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. As you explain that, I'm reminded of some conversations with I've, I've had with another associate, a gentleman by the name of Devin Campbell with a company called Product. And and he's, I often hear him say, you know, start with the end in mind and thinking about, you know, the ultimate end in mind. And then work backwards and build your strategy and your plan with that end in mind. Of course, you know, things pivot and change along the way, but I think that's what you just elaborated on is really key to that. The other thing that I'm, I'm thinking of is this is a journey and, you know, understanding that there might be numerous pit stops along the way, if you will, uh, to, to carry my travel metaphor through on this example. It's a journey. So, you know, stop one might be a wellness exemption. Stop two might be class one. Stop three might be 510K or Deno or whatever the case may be. And this is where the strategy uh, executive summary is good about defining or identifying those potential pit stops along the way. And then uh, the third thing I'll, I'll share, going back to your poker analogy, I want to be at the final table at the end. You know, I want to I want to be the, the last person there in that poker game. And so, you know, I, I may have to fold on a couple of those early hands, or maybe I'm, I'm I'll be a little bit aggressive in those those early hands. But nonetheless, I want to be there at that final table. I think that's a, a wonderful extension of my poker metaphor, John. Thank you for doing that. And you know, I, I don't know. Devin, but uh, I think the uh, end in mind philosophy that he shared with you, he actually took from Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, among other yeah. things. And one of Dr. Covey's seven habits is begin with the end in mind. So, you know, as they say, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Covey is one of the best, so you might as well steal from him. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you talked about the the benefit of an executive uh, regulatory strategy, executive summary for startup and smaller companies uh, as part of the quote pitch deck, if you will. Seems like that same sort of methodology could be uh, applicable even to larger, more established companies. Now there may not be a formal pitch or investor per se, but but at the same time, before I'm starting uh, a project, I, I probably this would be a good a good thing that for me to, to have mapped out before we invest uh, for my company, invest time, um, effort, resources, et cetera, into this endeavor. Um, any other thoughts about how this executive summary could be utilized for larger, more established companies? I'd like to take a moment to extend a personal invitation for everyone listening to attend the Greenlight Guru True Quality virtual summit. This three-day, three-track online event is completely free and will take place on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th 
And believe me, folks, this is a must-attend experience for all medical device quality, regulatory, and product development professionals. Reserve your spot now by visiting virtual-summit.greenlight.guru. We'll also include this link in the episode description. During the Greenlight Guru True Quality Virtual Summit, we'll stream directly to your desktop from the comfort of your own home with over 30 of the industry's top experts presenting a unique, personalized experience for attendees to learn actionable tips, trends, and best practices for streamlining development of innovative devices, staying ahead of regulatory changes, and achieving true quality for your medical devices and businesses. So before we resume this episode, head on over to virtual-summit.greenlight.guru to reserve your free all-access pass now. Well, I think the, uh, you know, as I said before, for medium and large companies, it's very, very similar to uh, a small company or a startup talking to uh, a VC or an angel group or even putting in an SBIR grant, grant application or something like that. You're not going to an outside organization, but in most larger companies, John, and I had to do this myself as an R&D engineer, you know, working in uh, larger companies many, many years ago, before you could devote any time or resources to developing a new device, let's say as an R&D engineer, I come up with a new idea for a device or a modification of a device. I have to sell it to my senior management team, basically convince them that, hey, this is worth pursuing. And, you know, go ahead and, you know, authorize me to spend the time and the resources to, to get there. So I think that uh, there's a heck of a lot of similarities between dealing with a, with a VC, uh, for example, and dealing with the senior management in your own company. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think in a startup case, I have some idea about the when I should be doing this, but it might be good to to speak a little bit about when in my company or my project, et cetera, should I be creating a regulatory strategy executive summary? Yeah, another great question, John. And one of my frustrations after playing this game for so many decades now is that in so many companies, certainly not all, but in so many companies, they don't bring regulatory in until very late in the in the project product development process. In some cases, even at or beyond the point of design freeze. And I don't want to go so far as to say that's a mistake. However, I can say this: the earlier the company brings in regulatory, whether it's me or somebody else the better. One nanosecond after coming up with the idea for the new device is not too soon. Because simply put, as a biomedical engineer and a regulatory professional, I can use my knowledge of both engineering and regulation to give the company options. For example, if the R&D engineer comes to me and says, well, I can design this device in one of three different ways. At the end of the day, it's, they're all going to do the same thing. Then I would be able to look at them, that, that, that product, and I would say, well, okay, if you design it according to option number two, that's going to greatly mitigate our regulatory burden in taking it through the FDA later. As opposed to if they've already gotten to the point of design freeze, if they're in the process of doing much of their V&V testing, then making those kinds of changes at that point are very difficult, very time-consuming, very expensive. And the, the metaphor that I sometimes use, John, is when my wife and I lived in Boston and we were refinishing the basement uh, of our home. 
and the contractor put out on the ground uh, in chalk lines where the walls were going to be. And the contractor said, make darn sure that these chalk lines are where you want them. Because if you want to move a wall six inches one way or the other or something, it's very easy to do. You just rub out the chalk line and you make a new one. After I build the walls, I can still move them, but it becomes a heck of a lot more time consuming and expensive to do. So bottom line, the earlier that a company brings in regulatory into the product development process, I think the better. And in terms of the regulatory strategy executive summary, don't worry about getting everything complete or perfect uh, on the first draft. It's not going to happen. Just get a first draft and then come back to it from time to time and iterate it. Just like for those in our audience who do or have done in the past medical device design, we don't necessarily try to design the perfect device in generation one. We design the device as best as we can for gen one, and then we start to use it, we start to test it, and then we might start to tweak it to make improvements and so on. It's a very iterative process, whether you're talking about designing a device or designing a regulatory strategy executive summary, it's a very iterative kind of a process. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think the iteration is key with, frankly, just about everything that we do. This is one of the things that it's kind of a pet peeve. I think a lot of times people think about, you know, plans and strategy documents. It's almost like they document it and they archive it. And it's like, no, 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 no. These things are dynamic. They change, they evolve and and they iterate. And so I think that's really important to factor in to this uh, regulatory strategy. So we've talked about a little bit about when and how and and those sorts of things. Let's talk a little bit about the, the what is it? What goes into a regulatory executive summary? So great question, John. We can make this as, as, as short or as long as we want. From my past experience, typical regulatory strategy executive summaries are roughly about two to maybe three pages long. Sometimes I'll get a summary from somebody who, you know, the, it might be 30 pages or longer, not to, to, to be, you know, argue semantics, but it kind of def- depends on your definition of summary. To me, 30 pages is not a summary, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, this is something that we come up with ourselves. Somebody asked me, for example, um, uh, can we get a example or a template of a regulatory strategy executive summary from the FDA? And I said, absolutely not. And they said, why? And I said, because quite frankly, that's not their job. It's your job to, yeah. to, to put this together. So, so some of the components that go into most of my regulatory strategy executive summaries, and again, you know, I don't take a one-size-fits-all approach. Every device is different. Every technology is different. Every company is different. But some of the common elements, if you will, would include things like the device description. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be a full-blown device description, but at least a basic explanation of the device, what it does, how it works. And the most important part of the device description in the context of a regulatory strategy executive summary is what are the technological bells and whistles or features that will influence the regulatory strategy. So for example, if you have a certain set of technological features, that might make it easier to sell as a 510K. And uh, on the other hand, if you have another set of technological features, that might make it easier to sell as a de novo. That kind of 
information in the device description would never go into a pre-sub device description. It would certainly never go into a submission to the FDA as a device description. So even though I use the phrase device description in the regulatory strategy executive summary, the connotation of device description is a little bit different than the typical connotation in, uh, of device description. In other words, sometimes people say to me, well, we've already got one device description, therefore we can just copy and paste it into all the different documents yeah. that we need it. And that's right. not necessarily the case. So before continuing to get to the other elements, John, does that make sense? Is there anything that you no, would add does. in terms of the device description? No, it makes sense. Okay, great. Great. So another element that usually goes into my summaries would be the labeling matrix. In a nutshell, this would be a list of all of our different possible label claims, ranging from the the easiest to the most difficult. And by the way, John, just to add, one of the many things that differentiates my approach to so many others is, as I said earlier, I will never be the regulatory police. I will never tell the company what they cannot say or what claims they cannot make. On the contrary, I say to the company, you can make any claim that you want. For example, and I'm going to use an extreme example, you can claim that your new device cures cancer and and regrows missing limbs if you want to, as long as you can prove it, as long as you can support it. So a list of all of those labeling claims, potential labeling claims, put together is what I call a labeling matrix. And that's another key element of the regulatory strategy executive summary, because Just like the device description, those different claims are going to greatly impact your regulatory strategy and your pathway to market. Class 1 exempt, 510K, de novo, PMA, wellness, what have you. And a related component is uh, another section of the summary is classification of risk. Sorry, classification and risk. Some discussion of the classification of the product as well as the risks of the product is warrant. doesn't have to be, you know, a 300-page PhD dissertation. Uh, like I said, I try to keep this whole document to just a few pages, but acknowledging, you know, having some discussion of classification and risk for anybody else that's reading the document, whether it's an investor or somebody else, they will know that we know what the heck that we're doing, that we haven't, that we haven't forgotten anything. So the first three categories that I mentioned, device description, labeling matrix, classification, and risk, any comments, anything that you would add on any of those, John, before continuing on? Well, maybe a little bit. So, you know, when you talk about all of those elements and then you all pick on risk a little bit, this is not necessarily risk for the the tactical pathway per se. This is just in general, right? This is the like overview risk of this particular product. Well, that's a great question, John. And you're right. I want to uh, not oversimplify uh, because as you and many of your audience know, I happen to be a subject matter for expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being risk. So in this context of the regulatory strategy executive summary, what I'm primarily thinking of here is regulatory risk. In other words, if we decide to go one particular pathway, what is what are the what is the relative probability of being successful or not taking it through the FDA as opposed to another pathway? Every single regulatory pathway to market has a certain degree of regulatory risk. You cannot eliminate it. You can certainly try to minimize it but you cannot eliminate it. And so one of the things that I provide with the companies that I work with is an assessment as best as I can as to what their regulatory risk would be under each of these different pathways that they're choosing. 
sometimes, usually, it's, it's very difficult to quantify. I can't say that, well, if you take this path, you have an 87% chance of being successful, as opposed to if you take another path, you have a 32% chance of being successful. I usually can't quantify it in those terms. But what I can do is give them a relative comparison. In other words, this one has a relatively high regulatory risk as opposed to this one that is you know, moderate or low or something like that. Yeah. All right. That helps. Thank you for elaborating on that a little bit. All right. So what else goes into the regulatory strategy executive summary? So some of the other sections, and again, there's going to be variability. Some some summaries will have all of these sections, some will not. But obviously, the potential pathways to market, the list of the different, um, you know, maybe it's a wellness device, maybe it's class one exempt, maybe it's class two 510K, maybe it's class two de novo, maybe it's class three PMA, maybe it's class three uh, HTE, and so on and so on. So a list of all of the possibilities, or at the very least, the most plausible possibilities. Let me just remind our audience, John, that there are some devices where exactly the same device can be brought onto the market in very different pathways. For example, one device, if I label it one way, um, I can bring it onto the market under the wellness exemption. The exact same device, if I label it another way, it might be class one exempt. If the exact same device, if I labeled it a third way, it might be class two 510K. The exact same device, if I label it a fourth way, might be class two de novo. And in some, albeit extreme examples, John, yet the exact same device, if I label it a fifth way, might be a PMA or an HDE, class three. So a discussion of the possible pathways to market is certainly um, an important part of that regulatory strategy executive summary. And then we have a few other parts that I usually include as well. I personally think that our communication strategy with the FDA is very important. As you and I have talked about many times in the past, John, I happen to be a big fan of the pre-sub process in spite of the, the frustrations of, of dealing it with the with the FDA, I still think overall the benefits outweigh the risks. And so some discussion of our of our communication strategy with the FDA is warranted. In other words, do we plan to do a pre-sub? And if so, when? And an estimation of time and cost and so on. And an overall uh, estimation of timeline and cost for the entire strategy is useful. So in other words, if we take option one, you know, say 510K, approximately this is how long it's going to take and this is how much it's going to cost to get it onto the market. Whereas if we do option two, de novo, it will be different numbers and so on. Then there's a couple of other sort of miscellaneous categories. I'm well, sorry, I don't want to call it miscellaneous, but uh, other other sections that may or may not go into the document. So I'll just mention them very briefly. Some mention on our international regulatory strategy in many cases is important because obviously uh, we live in a, in a global economy and most of the time companies are not looking at bringing a device onto the market just in one place, like in the U.S. They probably want to bring it onto the market in the EU and in Japan and in Canada and other places. So some mention of international regulatory strategy is important. Some mention of reimbursement strategy is also so important because even though reimbursement is a separate and distinct animal, there's a lot of overlap between regulatory and reimbursement. As I think when I have talked a little bit about in the past, John, I now more and more have to design my regulatory strategy to be in sync with my reimbursement strategy. And in some cases, I've had to change my regulatory strategy to match my reimbursement strategy. 
And one thing to keep in mind is, is that, you know, oftentimes I hear people complain about the amount of data that FDA will want to see for a clearance or an approval. But that amount of data that FDA usually wants to see usually pales in comparison to the amount of data that CMS wants to see for yeah. reimbursement. Yeah. So some discussion of that in, this, in the regulatory strategy executive summary, I also think is, is important. I think that's a really, really important point because I see this all too often is that, you know, the, we, we think or the company may think about that regulatory path and, you know, go full steam ahead toward a particular regulatory path. And then they get towards the end of that initial journey anyway. And, you know, maybe at a point where they're, they've already submitted something in the FDA and they haven't even begun to think about re- reimbursement strategy and, and so I think that point is really key that this, the time to think about it is at the front end because, you know, I actually, to be quite blunt, if, if there's somebody that's, if there's no one paying for it, then you're probably going to have a struggle in your go to market. I completely agree, John. It's obviously very important for the company to be considering those things early on. But I would also remind our audience, keep in mind the audience that we're writing this document for. If we're writing this document in part for investors, we want to demonstrate to our potential investors that we know what the heck we're doing and that we haven't forgotten anything. So, for example, if we don't mention anything about international regulatory strategy, if we don't mention anything about reimbursement, if we don't mention anything about communication with the FDA in the form of a precept or something else, how do we know you know, how does the person who's reading this document or listening yeah. to the presentation know if you are aware of this and just didn't include it or frankly, you don't know what the heck you're doing because you didn't even know to think about that. So this is the strategy that I use with FDA all the time. I want to demonstrate to my FDA friends or to my investor friends or quite frankly, whoever the heck it is that yes, I know what the heck I'm doing. Yeah, you can certainly give me, you know, your suggestions and I'll take them under advisement. But at the end of the day, this is my grade. This is my ballgame. Yeah, I, I think this has been amazing. So I appreciate you going into some depth and detail on this. One final question. And of course, your final thoughts to kind of wrap things up today. As you talked about a regulatory strategy and the executive summary, would this be um, a beneficial item to review with FDA during a pre-submission process? Interesting question, John. Uh, let me come back to that in just a moment. The, the, the last thing that I just want to mention to just kind of close the loop on what goes into the regulatory strategy executive summary. I always end with you know a section called summary and recommendations, um, which is just sort of a synopsis of what I've said in the rest of the document and my 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 takeaway points. And then you know anything after that in terms of you know additional resources or references you can add as an, an appendix. But the reason why I mentioned you know summary and recommendations. I mean, to me, John, it's a statement of the obvious, just like at the beginning, you have an overview and introduction. Just coincidentally, I got from one of my customers yesterday a draft document that they were going to send to the FDA. There was no overview and introduction. There was no summary and conclusion. It's like, put yourself in the shoes of the person that's reading this. The first thing that they have to understand. And they used to teach this in, in in high school, John, or maybe even elementary school. Maybe they don't teach it anymore. You have to tell the person, what is the purpose of this document? You know, yeah. What is it so what? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. My, uh, so no, that, your... that last statement reminds me of an English teacher I had in high school. She said, "Any you can make any argument or statement or or position that you want, just support it and explain why." <laughs> so I think um, really yeah. good tip there. Coming back to your to your question about the would you share this regulatory strategy executive summary with the FDA? My answer is ninety nine point nine percent of the time, absolutely not. And here's why: because this is supposed to be an internal document. It's supposed to be a document shared with maybe potential investors or something like that. It represents our uh, our thoughts, our ideas, a lot of different possibilities. The last thing that you would want to do, John, in my opinion is to go to the FDA and say, gee, there's three different ways that we can bring on our device onto the market. What would you suggest would be the method that we would use? You know, that is just yeah, so contrary point. to my tail don't ask, lead don't follow. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. That, you know, but here's what I would do, though, is you create this regulatory strategy executive summary with all of your different options. You use this as a as a set of talking points for discussion, both within your organization as well as, you know, your senior management, your investors, whoever it is. Once you settle on a regulatory pathway to market, then you go to the FDA and you take it to them. So there is a relationship. You can use the regulatory strategy executive summary as a stepping stone, for example, to your pre-sub package, but it's not the the regulatory strategy executive summary should not be, in my opinion, your pre-sub package. All right. That's a fair point. And I appreciate that. And Mike, I definitely appreciate going into depth and detail on this. So folks, I want to remind you that you probably know this by now, if you've listened to any episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast that uh, I do with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, he's an expert and, you know, he knows how to play this poker game, if you will. Uh, So I highly encourage you reaching out to him if you have questions or comments or you need additional tips or pointers. He's a resource that can help you build very solid regulatory strategy and someone that you want in your corner because of how long and and how effective he is at playing this game, if you will. So Mike, thank you so much for being a guest once again. I look forward to the next time that, that you and I get to speak.